Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, My head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Jean-Pierre Melville's debut feature film from 1949, Le Silence de la Mer, The Silence of the Sea. It's set in France in 1941 at the time of the Second World War. The Germans are occupying France, and a German soldier comes to stay with a niece and her uncle, who use their silence as a form of resistance against him. Every night, he comes to them and talks about his life, his interests, his love of France, and many other subjects, but they refuse to acknowledge him or to speak to him. Over the course of the film, their feelings for him start to get more complicated. He is an occupier in their country and in their house, but the intimacy of their meetings also humanizes him. This is not Melville's most famous film, but it's one that I think is profoundly important because of the way it asks us to expand our ideas about what constitutes resistance and how we interact with those who we're supposed to see as monstrous or as the enemy. I talk about Melville's life, the making of the film, and so much more. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash her head in films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about her head in films, or you could follow me on social media and even interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode about Jean-Pierre Melville's very powerful and haunting 1949 film Le Silence de la Mer. Right off the bat, let me say, I know that this is not the film that Jean-Pierre Melville is known for. He has many other more famous films, usually they're gangster films, like Le Samurai and Le Cercle Rouge, but this is the film that I find deeply compelling because of the way it looks at resistance and war. So I just want to get that out of the way, those of you who are hardcore cinephiles who know Melville, and some of you may be asking, why this one? Why of his entire filmography? Why this one? It does not get talked about as much. It's not the film he is most famous for, but I find it deeply compelling. I actually have not seen his gangster films, to be honest with you. I've only seen this one in Army of Shadows, and I think Army of Shadows is a masterpiece as well. I absolutely love Le Silence de la Mer. I love this film. I saw it years ago when I was first becoming a cinephile in the early 2010s, and it has stayed with me ever since. 
that is how I choose films for this podcast. It's not about, well, what is the the critical consensus? What is the most important film by a director? It's a film that I care about, I think is important, and it may not be important to anybody else. For instance, I did a few years ago a focus on Ingmar Bergman, and I chose a few of his films. And when you think of Ingmar Bergman, you're usually going to think of Persona or The Seventh Seal. There are many Ingmar Bergman films that might come to your mind. For me, I chose Summer Interlude. Nobody talks about Summer Interlude. I did an episode on it. Or Autumn Sonata. I don't think a lot of people talk about that one. That's another film that I covered. So sometimes with really famous directors, I don't really care what their most famous work is or what everybody else loves. If I love it and I think it's compelling and I think there's a richness there that I want to delve into, then that's what I'll do. And sometimes it depends on what's the first film by a director that I come across. For me with Melville, it was the Silence de la Mer. That was the first Melville that I ever saw and it remains my favorite by him. I will probably eventually watch more of his other films possibly. I don't know. I'm personally not drawn to or interested in gangster films. I'm I'm never going to say never, right? It's just not on my radar. It's not what I seek out. In general, I just don't get into films like that or films about the mob or films about the mafia or organized crime, things like that. I'm not drawn to that personally. But Le Silence de la Mer I'm very drawn to these kinds of questions that are in the film about silence and resistance and war, all these things that I find just fascinating and that I'll get into when I'm talking about the film. But I just wanted to acknowledge from the get-go, I know this is not his most famous film. For many people, this is probably a minor film by Melville. I do not think it's minor. I think it is visually up there with some of the greatest French films that I've ever seen personally. To me, for it to have been released in 1949, it was made several years before that, and for it to have been made on such a low budget, which I'll talk about in a moment, to me, it's visually stunning. It's visually haunting. I think it's a really good example of a director in his first feature really saying something, really putting a lot of himself into it. It almost feels like a personal film to me. I don't necessarily have evidence that it is, although Melville fought in the resistance, so you could argue this is a personal film because of the subject matter. But it shows a director not having a lot to work with, but doing so much with it. I honestly think maybe directors today could learn from Le Silence de la Mer. Like, he did not have a big budget, he did not have a lot of resources, and he managed to make a very intimate pared down film that is is heightened with emotion and it's a subtle film it it would maybe be slow to some people not a lot happens it's not exactly exciting but it's built on uh, subtle gestures and the interiority of the characters and all kinds of little things that you really have to be aware of or looking for, but he managed to do so much with so little. So who was Jean-Pierre Melville? I'm just going to talk a little bit about him, the circumstances surrounding the film, the source material and all that, and then I'll get into the film itself. So Jean-Pierre Melville is a very famous French director. 
He's very well known in cinephile circles. And he was born in a middle class family in Paris in 1917. He actually shot his first film when he was only six years old. It was actually of his family, I believe. And he was a passionate cinephile from a very early age. He adored cinema. He absolutely adored film. Spent a great deal of time watching films and loved it. All of this information I'm giving you comes from multiple different sources. I'm not going to give you a whole list in this episode of everything. Mainly a lot of this comes from the Criterion Collection extras for the DVD. So their edition of the film with essays on their website and extra documentaries. So all of that is combined in what I'm telling you. And a list of all my sources will be in the show notes of the episode if you want to know everybody that I consulted in getting this information. He was actually born Jean-Pierre Grumbach, but changed his last name to Melville because of his love for American culture and for the writer Herman Melville. Melville actually fought in the Second World War, and he was part of the resistance as well. He made several films about this time in French history. Army of Shadows is one, Leo Moran Priest, is another one with Jean-Paul Belmondo. The Nazis invaded, defeated, and subsequently occupied France beginning in May 1940. The Second World War itself started in September of 1939 when uh, the Nazis invaded Poland. I'm not going to give you a full breakdown of the Second World War, obviously. You can easily go and get information about that. But what is important to know is that starting in May 1940, the Nazis started to occupy France, occupy Paris and that the Nazis defeated the French very quickly. It happened rapidly. People were very shocked by it and it was a devastating defeat, honestly. It was a humiliating defeat for the French people. The French resistance was very active during that time and Jean-Pierre Melville was part of it and the man who wrote the book that inspired this film was also part of it and I'll get to that in a minute. Of this time in his life, which was the Second World War that Melville was involved in as both a soldier and a resistance fighter, he had very conflicted feelings about it. You can tell that it's a time of history and a time of his life and his youth that he was preoccupied with because he made three films about it. And he chose to make his first film about it. And I think that says a lot, that this is a subject that he comes back to multiple times. And it's the subject that he starts his very directing life with and starts his body of work with. He had different feelings about it. On the one hand, it was war. It was horrific. Worldwide, you know, millions of people died in various countries. It unleashed a a level of horror that I hope to God we never see in our own lifetimes. I'm still shocked people lived through that time period and the horror that happened during it. On the other hand for Melville, he called it like some of the best years of his life because of the bravery that he witnessed and the connection he felt to his fellow soldiers and the people that he was with in the resistance. So he had a complicated feeling about it. You know, he was in his 20s. It was his youth. It was probably very exhilarating at times to feel like you were part of something and that you were fighting back the way he was through the resistance. But then it's also just this horrific time period. But it's very interesting to me that he comes back to the subject over and over again. During the war, 
Melville dreamed of having his own studio and making his own films. And that's what he ended up doing after the war. And I would imagine that the war inspired him even more. I think when you come that close to death, I would imagine that he wanted to live even more and he wanted to make his dream of being a director and creating cinema that he wanted to make that real, especially after the brutal experiences of war. So I want to talk about the book that the film is based on and is very faithful to. Because of Melville's experience in the French Resistance, it was a natural choice to make his debut feature film on this subject. When he was in London, either in 1943 or 1942, two sources said different things that I read or watched. One said 42, one said 43. He read an English translation of a book that was originally written in France and in French entitled Le Silence de la Mer. And when he read that, he knew that it would be his first film. The book was written clandestinely and disseminated, and it was hugely popular and influential on the members of the French Resistance. It was written in 1941 by a journalist and illustrator named Jean Brulé, who used the alias Jean Vercors. I'm going to say Brulé because it's easier for me to say, and it's his original name, but I think he was primarily known as Vercors. Le Silence de la Mer was a novel and it was inspired by Brulé's own experience of a German soldier staying at his home with he and his wife. The German soldier seemed very cultured and this led Brulé to write this story of an uncle and a niece. They're never given any name except for that. They are the uncle and the niece who night after night remain silent as a German soldier talks about his life, his love of French culture, his belief that France and Germany can live in harmony and all kinds of other things. So it's interesting that the book was inspired by his own experience of being in a space with a German soldier and, and thinking about what kind of resistance would you have in that situation, right? Like, are you going to kill him? Obviously not. He's in your house. Here is this occupier, somebody who would be seen as the enemy, and they're right there in front of you. And it's a fascinating idea for a book, I think, and it forces one to think about a lot of different questions that I'll bring up in my film analysis. This book and this story was inspired by real events in the author's life. Brulé did not give the rights for the film to Melville. He felt the book could not be filmed. So Melville made a deal with him. He said that he would go ahead and he would make the film. He would fund it and finance it and all of that. Once it was finished, Brulé could have a jury of resistance fighters view the finished product. And if they did not unanimously approve of it, he would burn the negatives. It was a huge gamble for Melville, but it paid off. And I think it also shows how determined and persistent he was to make this film. Because when Brulé said, I'm not going to give you the rights, he could have just stopped. He could have just said, well, I'll move on. I'll find another project. I'll make another film about something else. He was not willing to do that. He did a huge gamble with this. All but one of the jury liked the film. And the person that didn't like the film was actually like a last minute substitute. So I don't think his vote really counted. But everybody else in the jury 
loved the film. So that's why we have it today. He did not burn the negatives, thankfully. The film is quite faithful to the book, as I said, but it does diverge in a few places. One is that the book does not contain the Treblinka scene that is in the film and that I'll talk about. This information about the death camp of Treblinka would not have been known to Brule at the time that he was writing the book. That was not something that was widely known. The death camps were not widely known at that time. There may have been rumors in certain places, but it was not widely known. The ending was changed a little bit too. In the book, the German soldier goes directly to the front without seeing the uncle or the niece again. In the film, there's that one last interaction with the uncle where he finds the book, the the quote in the book, and all of that. Melville did add that. I think what Melville did add to the film were necessary things, things that would give you historical context or more understanding of the character characters. He really did not mess too much with that original source material. I mean, we have the narration, right? Like we have the very words from the novel incorporated into the film. It's a very literary film in that way. And I think that's also why I love it because I come from a background of literature. I have a Bachelor of Arts in literature. I'm always drawn to that in films personally. And I'm very interested in film adaptations of books. It's just something that interests me at time and and um at times. And so the narration also keeps the book very front and center and keeps it very faithful to the book as well because here are the actual words. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the making of the film and then I'll get into my thoughts about it and feelings. The film was actually shot in the home of Jean Brule, the writer of the novel. This is according to Jeffrey O'Brien in the Criterion Collection essay about the film. To me, it's fascinating to think that the scenes and the interiors that we see in the film could have been the actual spaces where Brule and his wife interacted with the real German soldier that inspired the book. That actually added something kind of more intense about the film to me, that when you see these rooms, and the film is deeply interior and domestic, it is almost entirely shot within a few rooms, or one room in particular, where the uncle and the niece are always sitting with the when the German soldier comes in. At the time of making the film, Melville was not in the film industry union in France. So he was making the film outside of regulations, really. He was making it like in a rogue type way, I guess you could say. The film was made in 1947, but it was not in re- it was not released until 1949. The film was shot in 27 days, but not consecutively. It wasn't 27 straight days. It was a day here and a day there. This was a ultra, ultra low budget production, totally financed by Melville. Again, another example of how passionate he was about the project and how important it was to him. And I think he was putting a lot of himself into the film because of those circumstances where you've got to fight to make this film. If you've got to fight this hard, you're going to put as much of yourself into it as you possibly can. You're going to say something. I feel the determination in Melville with this film. Like he wanted to get it made. He went through huge obstacles to get it made. He had to periodically gather up resources. So he would shoot one day or a few days and then he'd have to wait until he had film stock, until he had this or he had that. And so it actually took over a year for him to shoot the film and complete it because of this. 
he did low budget things. He incorporated archive footage into the film, like in the scene when the German soldier is in Paris and you see the streets of Paris uh, as they would have looked in the early 1940s when the film is set. It's set in 1941. He didn't have to recreate those scenes. He just used the archive footage. He also used natural lighting and he would actually continue to use that kind of lighting even when he had bigger budgets on his later films. The cinematographer on the film was Henri Decay, and it was his first film also. Decay would go on to do more films with Melville, like Le Cercle Rouge, for instance. He also worked with other French cinema luminaries like Louis Malle. He did Elevator to the Gallows and The Lovers, and also Francois Truffaut's debut film, The 400 Blows. This is a man that had a very illustrious career in French cinema. So I've given you some of the circumstances of how the film was made, what inspired it. Now I'm going to talk about why I love this film, why I needed to talk about it. It's a very haunting film for me. Those are the types of films that I tend to talk about are the ones where imagery and the story and all of these things combine together and they stay with me for years. Literally, this film has lived with me for years and I've thought about it even more recently. Now I'm going to talk about my thoughts and feelings on it. can say sometimes why particular films stay with you and others don't. I don't see a lot of people talk about Le Silence de la Mer. When I went to the Criterion Collection website, when you look at the different films, say you put a film into the search bar, you'll see results about it. You'll see essays written about it, and you'll even see if other people have talked about it. Like Criterion Collection, they will let people do like their top 10 favorite Criterion films. Like nobody hardly has chosen this film for their top 10. There wasn't a lot of stuff about it on the website except for the essays that were written um, by film scholars for the DVD edition. It's not a film that really seems to get a lot of attention. I don't know why I watched it years ago. I don't know what precipitated me wanting to see the film. Sometimes Sometimes the reason I'll watch a film is I'll see an image from it or I'll see a trailer or I'll see maybe I'll come across it when I'm reading something and I, my interest will be piqued or whatever. I don't know exactly why I was drawn to the filming. I have an interest in the Second World War and in the Holocaust. That may have drawn me to it. I love French cinema. May have been a time when I was watching some French directors, but I was definitely drawn to it. It should have more attention, I think. Like I said, I've not seen a lot of Melville's work, but to me, this is, I don't need to see more of his work to know that this is a powerful film. And this is an important film, I think, in the things that it talks about. I think the theme itself of resistance and the different forms that it can come in are very, very important. It's something that is always relevant. How do you resist evil? How do you resist something that you don't agree with? But particularly, how do you resist an evil government? I recently did some episodes about Terrence Malick's work. 
I did some episodes uh, on Days of Heaven and the Tree of Life. And then on my Patreon, I did an episode about his recent film from 2019 called A Hidden Life. And it's about an Austrian farmer, Franz Jägerstadter, who was a real person. He refused to participate in the military in Austria. And he refused to take an oath to the Nazis as well. And he ended up being executed. And that was his act of resistance. And I've always been drawn to stories about resistance. Sophie Scholl is someone who really, really interests me. Her and the White Rose. And they, I want to say they spread leaflets and things like that. Anti-Nazi leaflets. And she ended up being executed along with the other people in the White Rose. There's a film about her. I think it's called... Sophie Scholl, The Last Days, or just Sophie Scholl is the title. There is a book by Hans Falada called Every Man Dies Alone that is about the real life story of a German couple who uh, left these postcards out in different places in Berlin that said critical things of the Nazis. They ended up being arrested for that, I think. Throughout history, and particularly during the Second World War, there are various stories about resistance and the different forms that that came in. Sometimes it came in literally being in the resistance movement, in the French resistance, for instance, with Jean-Pierre Melville and Jean Brule. And sometimes it came in a different kind of package or a different kind of form with something as small as disseminating leaflets or postcards that said something critical of the Nazi party or of Hitler. And these could be very dangerous things to do at that time. I'm interested in how we resist evil, how we resist violence, how we resist the things around us that we disagree with, whether that be protests or whether that be calling your senators or, you know, whatever political actions that you want to engage in. So I think the theme of resistance is always very relevant and always something that I think I'm always thinking about. And I'll talk more about it as I explore the film. So Howard Vernon is Werner von Ebernach, who is the German soldier in this film. There's Nicole Stefan as the niece. She was also in another film by Melville called Les Enfants Terribles. She's also known as one of the lovers of Susan Sontag. They were actually together in the 1970s. I remember learning about that because I think Nicole Stefan is magnificent in this film. I think her performance anchors it and it's important and it's breathtaking what she does in this film. She did not do a lot of films. She is striking on screen she has this very striking face her eyes are intense her face is intense she barely speaks in this film barely speaks and yet her silence and her gestures and her mannerisms that is how she speaks that is how she communicates and in that way she engages in a very pure form of acting it's almost i mean except for the german officer obviously talking it's almost like a silent film It is a film told primarily through imagery, and it's a film 
full of silence, as you would expect. The silence de la mer means the silence of the sea. Of course, the sea is not really silent. There's The sea is always moving. There's always something going on underneath the water, underneath the surface. And with Nicole's stuff on, that's the thing is that the surface looks very tranquil and serene and silent, of course. But underneath, there's something churning. The currents are are there. And there's always, there's more going on below that surface. And there's that turmoil that's going on inside of her that she expresses through her eyes or through her hands or through this gesture or that gesture that I'll talk about. And so for me, she really anchors the film. And along with Howard Vernon, I think Howard Vernon is quite, amazing in this film and it's so interesting to note about Howard Vernon. I've not seen any of his other films but he had a very long career in sort of these sexual exploitation films by Jesus Franco who was a Spanish director. They're these very wild films. I can't say that I'm drawn to them or interested in watching them, but he was in a bunch of them, Howard Vernon was. I just found that kind of interesting because when I think of Howard Vernon, I think of him in this role. I don't think of him in some kind of sexual exploitation film. And so it would be kind of interesting, I think, to see him that way because I don't see him that way at all. For me, he's forever in black and white and and he plays Von Ebernack. And the same with Nicole Stefan. Like she's just, both of them are, are pretty much known for their roles in this film. Like these were pretty um, defining roles in their careers, it seems like. Jean-Marie Robin is the uncle. I have not seen him in anything else as far as I know. And I felt there was something weird to me about the uncle in this film. I feel like he was supposed to look old, but I don't think the actor Jean-Marie Robin was actually as old as the character and so to me he looks like this young guy who's trying to look old I don't know am I the only one that thought that I don't know but it's like he just doesn't look that old to me but he's supposed to be because of course they gave him this white hair and you know all that stuff but he he looks like he's younger than that so I'm just going to go chronologically through the film I'm going to talk about scenes I'm going to talk about things that I think about and all of that. So this film, it's set, the story itself is set in 1941. So almost about a year after the French have been defeated and they've been occupied by the Nazis. It begins by showing Vercors or Brulé's book. So we're firmly at the beginning of this film planted and rooted in the book. Like this is going to be a more literary film. And as I said earlier, the narration predominates the entire film. The narration is pretty crucial because it allows us to understand some of the thoughts and feelings of the uncle and the niece because much of the film they're silent. Their resistance is their silence. That's what I find compelling about the film is that for me this is a film about inner resistance. You know, I also got to thinking what I was reminded of as well with this film was a a film by Steve McQueen called Hunger. And it stars Michael Fassbender. I have not seen it for years, but I remember being incredibly moved by it and amazed by it. Steve McQueen is an excellent director. I I definitely recommend Hunger and Shame. 
I remember seeing those around the same time years ago, and I was pretty knocked out by the intensity of them. Hunger is incredibly intense, and about a hunger strike, Michael Fassbender char- Michael Fassbender's character is basically dying of hunger in the film, but he uses hunger, the hunger strike, as a form of resistance. And so for me, hunger is about an example of the inner resistance. Like I think about people who are in extreme circumstances where they cannot physically resist what they are going through. People who are being tortured, interrogated, and things like that, right? People who are in circumstances where they don't have a weapon. They don't have any way to fight back against the people who are doing this to them. Or I think of like a film like Five Broken Cameras, which is about Palestinians who were resisting their occupation. It's about this man who has a camera and his form of resistance is filming what's happening to him and filming what's happening to the people around him. So that's why I think this film is so fascinating is what are the different forms of resistance, right? Or I think of somebody like Rachel Corey, who was very involved in in Palestinian resistance as well. And she ended up dying when a bulldozer, she was trying to protect the home of a Palestinian family. This happened in the early 2000s. She's a very inspiring person in my own life. She's a very important figure in my life. She has amazing diaries that were published or letters, letters and diaries. And her writing was superb. And she was trying to protect the home of a Palestinian family. And she got hit by a bulldozer that was manned by an Israeli soldier. And she ended up dying. She was basically murdered. And so that's another example of her resistance. She was there on a mission. She was there with other people. Their form of resistance was nonviolent and was trying to protect homes and they were engaging in different forms of resistance too. And so this is something that to me is global, this theme of resistance of like, if you're being tortured, if you're being interrogated, how do you resist? Sometimes there's that inner resistance, right? And with this film, it's about the inner resistance of the uncle and the niece. They do not give the German soldier what he wants. They do not give von Ebernack what he wants, which is their conversation, their words, their approval, their attention. They withhold all of that. And that is their inner resistance. That is their soul resisting a situation that they have no power over. I think what this film did for me is it expanded my idea of resistance it expanded what I include into that. You could say that with the police brutality that happens here in the United States, that uh, citizens on the street filming it is an act of resistance and, and different things like that. So for me, that is the, the ripples of this film, I think. And why it compels me so much is because I'm interested in this question of how do you resist evil? How do you resist violence? Or think about the civil rights movement, right? The nonviolent resistance that was happening with that. 
So there are all these different ways that you can resist evil, violence, injustice. And it's not always picking up a gun or picking up a weapon. Yes, there are people who, like Melville, were in the literal French resistance. And they were actually engaging in combat and engaging in things where they sabotaged the Nazis and things like that. Of course, that is like real active participatory resistance. And then there's this, there's all these other types of resistance, a hunger strike, filming something you shouldn't be filming, using your camera to document an injustice, refusing to speak when you're being tortured, for instance. There are all kinds of different ways that one could resist, and I think that's compelling. We should think about resistance in this more all-encompassing way, and I, and I think that's important that there's that inner resistance that happens in some very important figures throughout history and in stuff that we see today. And for me, La Silence de la Mer gets at that. It's about these two people and their refusal to speak and using their silence almost as a weapon, using their silence as a form of resistance. So I think the book and the film are both very relevant. And I'm kind of surprised that in this day and age, La Silence de la Mer is not talked about more, actually. Because I think there's actually like really important themes in this. There, There are themes in this that resonate and give us a lot to think about. So immediately we have the voiceover of the uncle. And he's talking about what happened after it's happened. And he's going back in time and saying the last six months of this German soldier who is Werner von Ebernach. That's the name of the man that's been staying with them for six months. So he's going back in time and telling us about this this soldier, about von Ebernach, and about the strange six months of that they have spent with this man intimately in their home. There is this huge military deployment to this small French village. And so the German soldiers are staying at people's houses. Werner von Ebernach gets assigned to their house. And they have to live with this man. And as I said, it was inspired by Jean Brule, aka Vercors, and his actual experience with his wife of, of having a German soldier stay with him, and that this man was very cultured. So he comes in, and he is living with them. He lives upstairs in like a bedroom in the house. Immediately when I started to rewatch the film, everything was confirmed for me. Like I'd watched this years ago, And sometimes when I choose a film for the podcast, I don't always know. Sometimes I'm taking a little bit of a risk when I go off films that I've seen years ago because you don't know if it's going to hold up, if it's going to be as good this time, or if if it's going to be as good as you remember. But this film was absolutely as good as I remembered. And what struck me as I started to watch the film was this film shows the visceral feeling of occupation of being occupied. And that occupation is not theoretical or abstract. It's personal and it's present in their very intimate spaces. This German soldier is in their home. He's standing right in front of them. He is in many ways an invader. He would be considered the enemy. He would be considered part of the Nazis, right? Part of this occupying force. He's no—he's not at a distance or a remove from them. He's right inside the walls of their home. They have to interact with him, but they choose that interaction and they choose the terms of it, the limits of it. 
and in that way they retain some form of power and control over the situation. That's the thing about their silence, I think, is that it is about them having some kind of power in the situation. That you know what? You can come in here, you can live with us because we have to let you in, and you can talk and talk and talk, and you can do all of these things, but you can't make us talk. You can't make us interact with you. We make that choice. We choose when we use our voice. We choose if we want to speak to you and we won't even look at you. That's very powerful to me. And it feels like a way for them to maintain some kind of control over the situation. They withhold what he most desires which is some kind of, I think, connection or interaction with them. You know, he talks and talks, but they never respond to any of it. I I think he desires the niece, actually. I do. And I think that she withholds that from him. She withholds her love from him. She withholds her body. And that that is also an act of resistance and power, too, for a woman to withhold that from somebody, from a man who is wanting it or desiring it. And so I think also that the niece has power in that way as well, where she does not give in to what I think are like advances, kind of, and him showing a interest in her, a romantic sexual interest. I think it's there. I think there is a sort of sexual tension in the film. And when von Ebernack, and that's what I'll refer to him, I mean, sometimes I'll say German soldier, but I think going forward, I'll say von Ebernack. When he first arrives at the house and he's standing at the door, it's still very um, shocking when you see it. His body is robed in darkness while his face is illuminated completely. And it gives him a very frightening look, like something out of like a German expressionist film. And a lot of people have made that comparison and I absolutely agree. And Howard Vernon, I think was a perfect choice for this role. He's a very interesting looking man and he was about 41. He might have been more in his late 30s, but he's close to 40 when he does the film. Nicole Stefan is in her 20s. She's about, you know, her mid-20s at the time when they're filming it. And Howard Vernon, he has these almost abnormally large eyes in the film, just in his face. That's just what his face looks like. And he's quite scary at times. It's weird. Howard Vernon was weird for me because he had a lot of stuff that he was doing for me in this film. On the one hand, he was very elegant looking and handsome and very attractive at times, particularly when he was just in his regular clothing. I think he's a handsome man for sure. But then he has these huge eyes that at times looked scary and then at times almost looked childish or childlike. Like when you looked at his eyes, you almost felt like you were looking at the eyes of a little boy. He had this very weird mixture of things for me where I found him alluring and seductive at times and very handsome and sort of like this sexual attractiveness about him. And then at other times, he's very scary. I think particularly when he's in the German soldier outfit, when he's in that uniform, I think he's very frightening looking and and imposing. And then his eyes were just strange to me. They were so big and at times menacing and evil And then at times almost childlike. I don't know how to describe it, but I think he's kind of, he was a fascinating choice, I think, because he had all that going on, which makes sense. 
because von Ebernack, he gives you a lot of conflicted feelings, I think. Where on the one hand, you're like, he is an invader. He is an occupier. He is the enemy. You know, he is a German soldier. It didn't seem like he embraced Nazi ideology. It didn't seem like he he didn't say those things. But he did believe in these high ideals or something about what the German army was doing in this in these countries and in France in particular. It's not clear how much he endorsed Nazi ideology of the time. He's a character where you feel conflicted about him because on the one hand, what he represents, he represents this violence and brutality and the, the German army and Nazis and all of these things, especially when he's in the uniform. And then when he's standing there talking about his life and his feelings and his love of literature, he's very human. You don't feel like he's a monster when he's talking. And so I think in a way, Howard Vernon embodied that where at times he could be menacing and then at times he could be soft or tender or you believed that he was being genuine and sincere. And he speaks French to them and he speaks it very well. I'm not a native French speaker, as you can tell, and I'm also not fluent, but to me, he came off as fluent. I didn't necessarily hear an accent, although a native French speaker would know that better than me, but he spoke French very, very well. It's an attempt, I think, on his part to dissolve the boundaries between them, dissolve the distance between them, to speak in their mother tongue, in their native tongue of French. Because he also loves French culture, French literature, and he wants to, I think, connect to them, and he wants to speak in their language instead of speaking in German. And at times in the film, he's shot uh, from below. A lot of times in the film, Von Ebernack is shown from below. And this is when usually he's like his most menacing. And then other times he's shot in ways that make him look more benign, I guess you would say, or, or innocuous. I have to mention the lighting in this film because it's a big part of it. And I think it's a big part of like the visual beauty of the film, the visual power of it is this natural lighting that Jean-Pierre Melville used. I think for me, this is one of my favorite aspects of the film is the lighting. It's hard to describe it. There are these pools of darkness and then there's this intense illumination in other spots. The skin of the actors is beautifully lit, almost seems tangible through the screen. But in the film, you'll see darkness and light in ways that you would not see in other films. It's just hard to describe. Sometimes like you'll see the niece silhouetted against a window. There's this one scene where the uncle's like in a hallway. Everything's dark. For the most part. I don't know, you see darkness in the film where I think a lot of directors would not have allowed there to be darkness, but Melville incorporates that into the film, the light and the dark. And then think of that huge close-up of Nicole Stefan's face near the end, and I'll talk about that when I get to it. That is almost unnaturally illuminated and glowing like her face is just glowing. So the use of light and dark is fascinating. And maybe it's it's also uh, metaphorical that here are the niece and the uncle and they are sort of the light in many ways. They are the ones engaging in their resistance. And then here is von Ebernack, who is like the darkness. His uniform is dark and, and there is something dark about him because 
there was a darkness in general with the war and with Nazi ideology, the German army. And so it's almost like a battle of light and dark, of good and evil, but it's more complicated than that as well. He is not totally evil. He is not totally monstrous. Even though we see him at the beginning of the film in that way with his his face illuminated and then the rest of his body sort of cloaked in darkness, he's almost like the beast in The Beauty and the Beast that he talks about later in the film. He, he's almost like a beast type character or what we would assume because when we see that uniform, that's what we think. We think monster. We think beast. We think brute. We think all kinds of things when we see a Nazi uniform. He's none of those things. So he is none of the things that we expect him to be. The film complicates it, right? Because it would be very easy if they had this German soldier in their home who just spouted stuff about Hitler and how great Hitler was. It, it would be very easy to do that. But instead the the German soldier is made to be articulate and cultured and all these things. And I think that's done for a very specific reason that I'll get into later. But I think it's connected to this idea of how did people like this commit mass murder on a scale that we have not seen before? How did somebody, um, and I'll echo this later, how did somebody who loves classical music and literature and, you know, a very cultured people the Germans were, produced important literature, produced important classical music and composers. This is the society. These are the people who turned death into like a, a factory. This, this is what happened. They killed millions of people so efficiently. Like we don't understand it. Like we don't understand how people do evil things. I still don't understand it. And so when you make Von Ebernack human, you make us grapple with that. You make us grapple with how do human beings do evil things? How do human beings become evil? Because we don't understand it. We'll never understand it. So they could have made Von Ebernack into some kind of stereotype or cliche. Brule did not do that. And Melville didn't do that either. And immediately the uncle is kind of impressed by Von Ebernack. He says that he seems respectable. But the niece from the very beginning is not having it. (laughs) She kind of shrugs her shoulders when he says that. Like she is trying not to give in to Vani Bernack throughout the film and not be seduced by him. But I think the uncle is a little bit more seduced by him. She's very intent on not giving in to this man until the very, very end when she has her moment. Another fascinating part of this film besides the lighting is how interior the film is. It's a film of interiors, of the domestic space. It's shot in very small rooms where the characters are in close contact with each other. And just as it focuses on these physical interiors, it also explores psychological interiority, the inner spirit, the struggles inside one's own mind and conscience. And these things are expressed very subtly in the film. What we're supposed to realize throughout the film is that the niece is starting to feel things for Von Ebernack. And it comes through her gestures and her actions. Like there's one point at the film where she's sewing. She does something with the needle and drops it or whatever. And that's supposed to tell us that he has made his way inside her in some way. Even though she put up all her defenses and she put up a fortress 
around herself to not be affected by this man. He penetrates that. He gets inside her and he gets inside the uncle too. I mean, he becomes part of their lives. It's not just her. The narration or the voiceover of the uncle, we get a sense of his feelings. We get a sense that he does like the German author. He does like von Ebernack and that he's starting to soften to von Ebernack. But with the niece, we never really know We have to just go off her eyes and her looks and her hands and her gestures. And it's a subtle film and so it might be frustrating for some people, but I loved that. And I really loved the close confines of the film. It almost felt claustrophobic or a bit suffocating at times where you have these three people in these small spaces having to interact with each other. And I thought that was really fascinating. The uncle tells us that he and the niece have decided not to change any detail of their lives on purpose once von Ebernack comes to live with him. He says that they are going to treat him like a ghost, like he's not even there. But at the same time, the uncle says that he doesn't want to offend von Ebernack, even though he is the enemy. So their silence is a little bit complicated where it's like, it's a choice, but it's also comes from them not necessarily wanting to be confrontational. Like they don't seem like confrontational people. There's a really good extra with the Criterion Collection edition of the film with Jeanette Vincendu. And she wrote a book about Jean-Pierre Melville. She had a lot to say about France under the occupation under the German occupation. And she said in that interview that many people in France were neither resistors nor collaborators. She said they were just waiting for it to end and to get on with their life. So you have a huge swath of the French public that are not active participants in the war necessarily. They're not in the French resistance and they're not collaborating with the Nazis. They are just living their lives, putting their head down, trying to get through it. And that's kind of who the uncle and the niece are. Neither one of them are in the resistance, but they're not necessarily, you know, collaborating or anything like that. They're just trying to get through it. And she also said that the film is sort of allegorical. The niece represents France in some ways. I thought that was interesting that Von Ebernack is like Germany and then the niece is like France and Throughout the film, he'll talk about France and Germany coming together, getting, having a marriage, being in harmony, right? And in a way, what he's really, it's almost like coded language a bit, where yes, he's literally talking about Germany and France, but he's also trying to convey a message or something to the niece. And I do believe that he felt something for the niece and was attracted to her because throughout the film, he looks at her for much of the film. When he is talking about France and Germany, he's looking at her. Vincent Du also said that Brule, that his book was controversial. She said it was controversial because he showed resistance as a form of passivity. I guess it was controversial to see these two people passively resisting. And she said that you can see them as being noble while also criticizing that passivity. But she said at the same time, they represented many people who lived during the war. So they were passive. And some people, I think, are frustrated 
by how passive they are. I guess some people see resistance in that situation as like, well, why didn't the niece get in his face? Why didn't the niece talk to him and argue with him? Why, when he was saying all these things, didn't they speak up and say, no, you're wrong? They didn't. They just stayed silent. And so is the silent, is the silence complicity? You know, if someone's standing there saying these things that von Ebernack was saying about Germany and France and the harmony and all that, are they being complicit by not speaking up? Are they being complicit by not saying anything back to him, fighting with him and arguing with him? That's a, that's a good question to ask, right? But at the same time, I think it's interesting that the niece and the uncle are actually closer to what most people in France went through during the war. They weren't bad they weren't bad people. You know, they weren't going out and fighting with the Nazis and on the Nazi side or anything, but they weren't in the resistance either. They were somewhere in between, just trying to get through it. Not everybody was an active participant putting their life on the line. And there's a judgment of that. And I guess that's valid. I mean, I guess it's valid to say, you see this evil happening. Why don't you do anything? And I don't think that their their act of remaining silent should necessarily be put on the same level as the people who risked their lives, right? There's a very big difference between being on the front lines of a war and just remaining silent. (laughs) You know, your body's not necessarily in peril or going to be killed in in doing that. Takes a kind of uh, bravery to do what many of the resistance fighters did, obviously. Although they themselves were complicated, I think it's very important not to make saints or martyrs out of people. An Army of Shadows by Melville shows a much more complex and complicated view of the French resistance and the people who were in it and the decisions that they had to make. And I think I think uh, partly that's what I like about Melville is that I think he's raising moral questions, but he's making it messy. He's not giving us the perfect good people and then the monstrous bad people in this film. Like you can look at the uncle and the niece and say, why are they resisting in this particular way? Are they resisting in a way that's just easy and comforting? You know, they don't have to speak. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to confront him. They don't have to upset him. They don't have to upset their lives, right? They don't have to upset their their existence. They get to just sit there and be passive and silent instead of confronting him. And you can totally make that argument. I think their silence is powerful, but some people may not. So even the people who are who are like the good people in the film are the protagonists, it's kind of more complicated, right? Like he doesn't give us a totally bad person in Von Ebernack, but he doesn't give us saints in the niece and the uncle either. You can definitely raise questions about, well, was that the right kind of resistance? Or could they have done more? Could they have gone further? What would it have accomplished? You know, he's a, he's a soldier in their house house. And if they make him mad or they confront him, they could put their lives at risk. Who's to say this guy wouldn't just have them arrested because they said something to him that he didn't like? So no, them being silent is not the same exact thing as people on the streets in the resistance. But I do think it's worthwhile to consider different forms of resistance, as I said earlier, to expand our idea of how people resist, how they resist occupation, how they resist violence, how they resist systems that um, oppress them. It's worth thinking about that. And I really love this point that uh, Jeanette 
Vincent Du brought up in her interview. She said that there are times when silence itself is not passive. And for instance, somebody remaining silent under torture or interrogation, often in the Second World War when, when resistance fighters were captured, they were tortured so that they would speak and they, they would sell out the resistance. And so when they remained silent, they were protecting the other people in the resistance. So silence is not always passive. Sometimes it can be dangerous. And so for over a month, every day, Von Ebernack comes into the room with the niece and the uncle. He talks about the weather. He looks around the room. He looks at the niece. He's obviously attracted to her. And this becomes a nightly ritual that all of them kind of participate in. And every time he comes into the room and he talks about all kinds of different things, they don't acknowledge him. They... They ignore him. They pay no attention to him. But despite all their efforts, he starts to enter their thoughts. For instance, one night he's late. One night he doesn't come into the room when he usually does. And the uncle starts to wonder about him. And so in this way, he becomes part of their lives. Despite their facade of indifference, instead of coming through the front door, he goes through the back that night because it's snowy and he would not look polished And he always wants to look very polished and put together. And so he goes in the back way so that he can change. Throughout these visits, he talks a lot, Von Ebernack. He talks about how he's always loved France. He talks about his father. He talks about how he himself is a composer. Something that that, um, occurred to me was like their silence almost makes him more loquacious (laughs) <laughs> like the fact that they don't talk makes him talk even more. He he talks about the war and he thinks great things will come of it. He thinks Germany and France will have this unity. And he says that the sun will shine on Europe. As his father said, he talks about his father like his father was crushed by the defeat of Germany in the First World War. So this is the first time when he really starts to talk about his family and his life and him being a composer and things like that. When he leaves the room that night, the niece looks back at him after he's gone. Like she looks back at the door after he shuts it and is gone. And she hasn't done that up to that point. And this is a good example of the way her feelings start to shift throughout the film. It's this subtle change in her behavior. And even though she ignores him and she like she's knitting usually uh, during his speeches, she reveals herself. She gives herself away at times. The uncle's even more seduced. At one point he says something like, perhaps it's inhuman to refuse him even a single word. That's what he says. And and the niece just looks at him. She seems startled by such a suggestion. It's interesting how the uncle seems more willing to break the vow of silence and to let Von Ebernack in. And I think it's a, it's a result of night after night being in close proximity with Von Ebernack, someone who's supposed to be an enemy. And here he is talking about music and his father. It humanizes him. And even though we should be completely against Von Ebernack, we should hate him because of what he stands for and and what he is part of. It's harder, I think, when a person is right in front of you. It's hard to see them as monstrous when they're not acting like a monster. It's hard to dehumanize somebody when they seem like you, when they have the same interests as you. And that is the conflict that I find 
so compelling about this fo- about this film. They are forced into close quarters with this man and in a kind of confrontation with him. And of course, of course, it goes without saying, they abhor the occupation. They abhor the war and the Nazis. But because of these visits night after night, he's not a symbol anymore. He's a person. And of course, if we are against hatred and dehumanization when it's done by others, then we would not want to do those things ourselves. And But that's not easy when it's people who say and do things that we find appalling and that we find so against everything that we believe. And so I do think the film raises these moral questions that there are no easy answers to. I'm still very disturbed and unsettled by how ordinary the people were who facilitated the Holocaust and who participated in it and encouraged it and carried it out. These were men who had wives and children. These were men who read literature and listened to classical music. These were smart, educated people, some of them, or many of them, who did these horrific acts. Like, I think that is a big issue. This is what I was talking about earlier. What makes somebody do evil things? What makes somebody evil? And I think that's why I'm partly attracted to true crime. Like, I've talked a little bit about this on the podcast. Like, I did an episode about Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, where I talked about my true crime obsession. I am drawn to true crime. I'm drawn to evil. I don't know why. I'm drawn to questions about evil, questions about violence, questions about how we treat each other in the world. And I still can't comprehend how you would kill another person or you would do violence to another person. Like, how do you become that person? How does that happen? Where you could so dehumanize somebody else that you could hurt them or kill them or physically harm them. I have never physically hurt anybody in my life. I would never want to. I guess the issue of violence is one that I just come back to over and over again. I watch a lot of stuff about violence, about large events, or about events both large and small that include violence and murder. Whether it's a true crime show or it's a documentary. Right now I'm I'm watching a documentary on Netflix about the Paris attacks on November 13th, 2015. It's by the Nalde brothers. It's a three-part series about it. I've been very interested recently in 9-11, the attacks of September 11th. I'm interested in violence. I'm interested in stories of Uh, mass violence and also interpersonal violence. I don't know why. It's like I come back to this question constantly. How do we do this? And I've been interested in these questions since I was a child. I've been interested in the Holocaust since I was 10 years old. I've been interested in genocide since I was a child. I remember reading about the Rwandan genocide, for instance, or the Armenian genocide. Like, I couldn't comprehend it, and I still can't. I can't comprehend millions of people being murdered and people just allowing it to happen. I can't understand it. And that's why I come back to the Holocaust, too. The Holocaust was carried out by people like Von Ebernack or people similar to Von Ebernack. I've always been haunted by these photos. Some of you may know them. They were taken near Auschwitz, the death camp of Auschwitz. And it shows the Nazi guards or something like they're at a party 
I think there's women there. It's men and women. They're like dancing and singing. And it almost looks like a picnic or some kind of get together. And it's like literally nearby. People were being gassed and cremated. Children and all kinds of different people were being murdered. And these people are living it up and having a party. And I've never been able to bring those two things together in my mind. That you are partying it up. And having fun when a mile away or however far away, people's literal ashes are going into the air. What? And Von Ebernack is part of this. He's part of this machinery of the German war machine, the Nazi war machine that bulldozed so many lives and took so many lives. And it's like, how did this happen? How did people do this? And so Von Ebernack is... He's a complicated figure for me. You see him as human. And that's the hardest part about the film. Because you don't want to see him as human. You want to see him as this beast, this monster. And you can't. And eventually his visits start to change where he's no longer wearing his uniform anymore. He starts to wear his regular clothes. We also see that he has a limp. So over the course of the film, you know, he starts off as like this man covered in darkness with this this face of light, something out of a a horror film by a German expressionist, right? Like he starts off as almost like the embodiment of evil. And then over the course of the film, that gets chipped away. And it's like, oh, he loves French literature and he composes music and, and yet he's a German soldier. Like it's, it's hard to even understand it. And I think maybe you're a little bit like the niece where at the beginning you're like, I will not like this person. I am not going to like this guy. Okay. And then he starts talking and you're like, oh, okay. And then before you know it, he has this charisma And it's like, you're almost falling under his spell or you're almost, you're certainly seeing him more as a person, right? Than some abstract thing or idea. And there's this amazing scene outside. It has snowed and the niece is walking the dog in the snow and up ahead is Von Ebernack. And she has to pass by him on the road and she keeps her head down and she totally ignores him. But he looks at her and I think he kind of salutes her or something like that. And it's really their only encounter with each other outside the confines of the house. The entire, it's, it's almost like that the house becomes this alternate universe or the house becomes a world in itself where these three people who would normally not interact with each other out in the real world are forced into this close space together. They're forced into this intimacy. They're saying, or he is saying things that he has maybe never told any other person. He is sharing things about himself. He is being vulnerable in a way that he has maybe never been vulnerable before with these two people. They are sharing something or creating something in that space that cannot live outside of that space, if that makes any sense. Like they know each other in a way that nobody else will ever know them. Or those two people know him in a way that nobody else will ever know him. And when he sees her out walking the dog, like all of a sudden it's awkward. And it's almost like they don't even know each other if they've never met. And I got to thinking like, I also wonder if that could have endangered her if she had acknowledged him or if she had stopped and talked to him. Would her neighbors have seen that? Would that have been seen as collaboration? Because I still remember seeing images after the 
Second World War ended in France, like there were people who were paraded around who had been collaborators. I think some of them were killed. Some of them, some of the women, I think I've seen images of them. They had their heads shaved. I was reminded of Hiroshima Mon Amour in that film, Emmanuel Rivas character during the war she has like a forbidden romance with a German soldier and she's French and she gets in a lot of trouble for it. And so I think there was definitely an animosity, a threat to your life if you had a romantic relationship with a German soldier as a French woman. And so I also wonder if her silence and her distance from him is also for her own protection and her own self-preservation that if she did have a relationship with him or if she was seen publicly engaging with him that she would be branded or it would get around or something about her being a collaborator or her having a relationship with a German soldier. One evening, Von Ebernack is talking to them and he he talks about the niece. He calls the niece a silent young lady. And then he talks about the silence of France and how, quote, we must conquer this silence, conquer the silence of France, unquote. And I took this as a very explicit desire on his part to conquer the niece, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but this desire on his part to conquer her or to possibly possess her, and I think he would if he could, but she withholds that from him. She refuses him what he wants, the possible romantic and sexual relationship that he would want with her. She just keeps on knitting. I love her. I love how Nicole Stefan in this film is like a pillar. She's like a pillar of strength. She's like the embodiment of this resistance. Like even when the uncle is starting starting to soften towards Von Ebernack, she is the one that keeps going. She is very intent on not acknowledging him no matter what she feels inside. The thing is, is that we know inside that something's starting to stir. That feeling you get when you're attracted to somebody, that it's like very intense and overwhelming. When you start to feel that erotic charge, I think that's in her. I mean, I think she is attracted to him, but she just sits there. She does her knitting. She does her sewing. She's very steadfast and she's very powerful in her stoicism. She's a very stoic figure and she's very strong. And I love the power that she has in this film. Like to me, she's the anchor. Like to me, she is like the heart and soul and conscience and central figure of the film. I don't know how other people feel about it. She knows the power she has. She could give him what he wants, right? I mean, she could. And she doesn't do that. She's not going to give him what he wants. In an interview on one of the Criterion Collection extras, like a documentary, Nicole Stefan says that the niece in this film resists love. She resists falling in love with the German officer. And by doing this, she herself becomes a resistance fighter. I thought that was so fascinating. Again, that's what I love about this film is like talking about different forms of resistance. What the niece has to do is resist her very feelings and her very emotions. That's hard. It can be very difficult to resist what you are feeling inside of yourself. The thing is, is that they could have made it to where the niece had no feelings for him at all. And then it would have been easy. She wouldn't have anything to resist because she wouldn't feel anything for him. What makes her resistance even more powerful is that she is attracted to him. She 
may want to be with him. She may be falling in love with him. She may be feeling seduced by him. But instead, she resists that. She resists falling in love. Like, how hard would that be? To resist falling in love with somebody. To resist your own feelings. She pretends to ignore him. But in a way, you know, she is deeply aware of his presence. And I I get the sense he probably consumes her thoughts. Like, she's not going to give that away. But she probably thinks about him a lot. I mean, think about when you're first falling in love or you're first attracted to somebody and they're all you can think about. I'm sure that's going on in her to some extent, but she has to resist it. She can't show it. There's this scene where Von Ebernack uh, plays the harmonium in the house. He plays music and he's a composer. The niece and the uncle seem very moved by that. They seem moved by that music. It's just another, another example of how they are softening to him. And even the uncle admits to admiring Von Ebernack because of his persistence. Because every night he comes and he talks and he engages with them and he gets nothing out of it. I mean, he's talking to the silence. He's talking into the silence. And he gets no response. He gets no echo. He gets nothing out of these two people. And yet he keeps doing it night after night after night. Like, what does he get out of it? And the uncle says that Von Ebernack, he never tried to tear them away from their silence. And he never used violent language towards them. Some people might have gotten frustrated and said, why are you not talking to me? Why are you doing this? Why won't you speak to me? And it's almost like Von Ebernack understands what they're doing and understands why they're doing it. I think at some point he talks about the German soul. Like I think he, think he understands the way the Germans are viewed. You know, it was like the, the inhumanity that people see in them during this time period, of course. And he, I think he understands the reticence and he understands that silence. There's a very telling scene when Von Ebernack is talking about this woman that he once dated, how they took walks together in the woods, and the niece is sewing during that story. And this is another great example of how she has to convey things through these subtle mannerisms. She starts to have an issue with the needle. Like, I think the thread comes out of the needle and she has to re-thread it. This is like a little crack in her facade. She's flustered by thinking about him with another woman. When he talks about this woman, he talks about how he actually didn't like her because she was bit by this insect and she grabbed the insect off of her skin and then she started to torture it. She pulled its legs off and all kinds of things like that. She she inflicts this violence towards this tiny, tiny insect. He said that... uh. He became very scared of German girls as a result of that. And the niece, to me, it seemed like the niece seemed kind of pleased to hear that. You can tell that she definitely feels something for him. She doesn't like imagining him with another woman. And perhaps she imagines herself with him. And so she doesn't like that at all. And the only way that you know that is through something small as her needle coming unthreaded. And it's it's an example of how the inner feelings of the niece sometimes manifest ex- externally through the things that she's doing or the looks that she makes. Von Imbernach just has these these grand ideas about Germany and about France. And he believes there will be this harmonious marriage between France and Germany. He seems... Like, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Like, he seems unwilling to 
understand or conceive of himself as an occupier, as a violent occupier, as a representation of France's defeat and part of the very group that defeated the country. In this war, France and Germany cannot love each other because one of them is at the mercy of the other. And he doesn't seem to understand that. He thinks there will be this unity or this coming together, but they're not equal. France is dominated, humiliated, violated by Germany. Resistance fighters were killed. Jews and other groups were rounded up, sent to camps. There is no love between these two countries at this time. Von Ebernach is in a position of power in the house. His relationship with the niece and the uncle is not equal because he is dominant. He has power over them. He has power over the niece. He and the niece can never be together. And even if they were together, it's not an equal relationship. It can't be an equal relationship with one when one dominates and controls the other. There's another scene where one of them interacts with von Ebernach outside of the house. And it's when the uncle has to go to the commandator, calls it. It's like this command post. He has to do something bureaucratic. But it's an office where these German soldiers are doing just routine bureaucratic stuff. And the uncle is standing there and von Ebernach walks into the room and he's giving orders to this soldier and then he sees the uncle and it's so that's such an interesting scene because von Ebernach is looking in a mirror and he sees the uncle in the mirror and so he's looking at the reflection of the uncle and you also see the reflection of von Ebernach in the mirror you can tell that he's very uncomfortable almost frightened to see the uncle in this kind of context where he's a soldier and he's participating in these actions and giving orders. They've never seen each other outside of the house. Von Ebernach almost says something, but he doesn't. He just bows and he goes back into his room. It's seeing him in a different context. It's seeing him possibly complicit in mass murder because he is part of the German war machine. He's one part of it. You know, it made me think kind of of like Adolf Eichmann. Like, I'm sure he had some office and some building, and he went in there and helped orchestrate the murders of tons of Jewish people. It was everyday work to them. It was everyday ordinary life to them, that they just went into these offices and made mass murder possible with their actions. And so it's a reminder that von Ebernach is part of that. And eventually von Ebernach gets to the point where he doesn't want to be part of it, where he realizes what he is part of, what he is complicit in, because he didn't know. Apparently, he did not know until he goes to Paris to meet with some other German soldiers and Nazis. And he talks about this later that night after seeing the uncle at that office. And then I think later that night he comes in and he's talking to them and he makes this announcement and he says that everything he said for the last six months must be forgotten. For the first time, the niece looks at him and he looks back at her. That's like the first time they've ever like locked eyes with each other. And that's when you know. That's when you know that she has she has feelings for him. She has serious feelings for him. And there's this close-up of Nicole Stefan's face that is just magnificent. Her eyes are hypnotic. Her entire face takes up the screen and has this unnatural glow to it. Like it still haunts me. It's a big part of why this film haunts me is Nicole Stefan. And her eyes 
just scream with desire, I think, and passion. And for much of the film, she's been very stoic. She's not shown emotion. She's not, you know, shown a whole lot. And then everything is in her face and in her eyes, all the longing. And he covers his face and says, oh, what a light or something like that. I guess it's like her face. Is it her face? It's like he can't stand to look directly into her eyes. It's almost like it's looking into the sun or something to look into her eyes. But her face is just glowing. It's just otherworldly. Like I've never seen a close-up like that. I don't even know what comes close. Maybe maybe Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc. That's about as close that you get to that kind of close-up where you're just pinned to your seat looking at her. Like what is this? This is just on another level. And this is when he tells them about the visit that he did to Paris with these Nazi soldiers. And he learns about a death camp in Poland called Treblinka. This was a very notorious death camp. Um, I remember when I was younger, years and years ago, reading a book about Treblinka, and it was pretty horrific. And he reads about mass executions, gas chambers, crematoriums, all the horrors that we now know about the Holocaust. This is when he realizes what is happening what Germany is doing, what the Nazis are doing, and Hitler is doing. This is when he has to let go of his grand delusions and illusions about what Germany is, about what the German army is, what the Nazis are. He has to face reality of the murder and the genocide that is taking place. And that he is part of, he is one part of, because he's in the military. And he also goes to a party where there are a bunch of soldiers, and they talk about destroying France. They don't want a marriage. They don't want some kind of harmony between Germany and France. They want to destroy it. They want to destroy the literature, the books, the soul, the spirit of the people and the country. He sees the death and the, the destruction that's happening and the death and destruction that is to come. And he's horrified by it. He doesn't justify it. He asks where his duty should lie. And he says, quote, is it our duty to never condone murder? Unquote. Is it our duty to never condone murder? So now he's in an impossible situation. He sees the evil of his government, just the way many people did back then, and who tried to resist it in whatever ways they could. They saw the evil of this war machine. They saw the evil of Nazi ideology. Sophie Scholl, Franz Jaeger's daughter. There are important people who did resist these things. They could not condone the murder. They could not live with seeing it happen and knowing that it was happening. And what's the difference between them and everybody else? That's what's important is like, there are some people who feel obligated to fight back against that. To fight back against that evil and that oppression and that injustice. And they they put their lives on the line for it. They are willing to die for it. And then there's the rest of us who do nothing. Or we're silent or we're complicit or or we just don't know what to do. We don't know what the answer is. We just want it to be over. You know, we're like all those those French people who are just waiting, just waiting for it to end. Not collaborating, not resisting, but just waiting. And I think we can look back at history and we can say, we would have done this or we would have done that 
right? Like, oh, I would have been in the resistance all the way. I would have fought back. I would have put my life on the line. But you don't know that. You don't know for sure that you would have done that if you were raised in that society with those views. You know, what? what is the violence that we are tolerating in our own time? What are the horrors and injustices that we are tolerating? The children in cages at the, at the border with Mexico. The bombings in the Middle East. What's happening in Yemen? What's happened in Syria? The horror that our military unleashed in Iraq and Afghanistan right? Abu Ghraib. There are a whole lot of things, a whole lot of violence being done in our name around this world. And most of us are not doing anything to stop it. There were protests about the war in Iraq, but it still happened. We didn't stop it. And hundreds of thousands of people died as a result. And we never talk about it. We never talk about it. It still shocks me. Like, I gotta be honest, it still shocks me that we invaded a country caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and never talk about those lives. Ever. Ever. We haven't apologized. We're still there. We're still in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we never, ever talk about the horror that we unleashed in those countries. The bombings, the deaths, none of it. We don't do anything about it. We like to think we'd do this, this, and that if we were alive back then but we don't know because there's lots of things being done in our name by our military all around the world and it's unsavory and it's violent and it's horrific. Yes, we speak out, we sign petitions, we go to protests and it continues because you're one person and you can't stop a military machine. You can't do it. You can't stop a government. And that's what people were up against at this time. Von Ebernack is one soldier, He's not going to stop the Holocaust. He has no control over Treblinka. What is he supposed to do? But I'll give credit to Von Ebernack that once he knows, once he is enlightened about the reality of the Nazis and what they are doing and the military and what it's doing, he doesn't want to be part of it. And he ends up getting himself transferred to the front lines of the war where he's most likely going to be killed. That's what he wants to do. He'd rather die than fight for what has been revealed to him as a destructive and dangerous ideology. Really, if you think about it, all three of them are caught in the machinery of war. They have no power over any of it, really. They're all caught. And von Ebernack does not agree with any of this. Yes, he's in the army. You know, he's in the the military. He wears that uniform, but he doesn't believe in that ideology. He doesn't condone that. He doesn't want to engage in that. He doesn't want to do it. So the thing is, is that von Ebernack at the beginning of the film starts off as like, we're already against him. We're like, oh, this is a German soldier. This must be a Nazi. This must be someone hateful and horrible. This must be a brute and a beast and all of that. And he's not. And I'm sure that's what the niece and uncle expected too. That, oh my God, you know, he's just going to be horrible to live with. And he's none of those things. He's smart, educated, cultured. He loves music. He's a composer. He has very high ideals and he is sort of delusional about some of this stuff, but he believes it. You know, he's idealistic. I would describe him as idealistic. And then he finds out the truth of what he's fighting for. He finds out the truth of what he is part of and he does not want to be part of it any longer. And he's willing to die 
to escape it because he knows he can't leave the military. I'm sure he would have been seen as treasonous or executed or something. You don't just walk away from the military during a war. He knew he had no way out, but he could not live with himself if he had participated in it actively. In a way, this is von Ebernach's resistance. He could he could leave the military. He could stand up against it. That's true. And that seems to be what the uncle at the end is um, encouraging him to do, is to not follow orders. But in a way, von Ebernach's resistance is through death. The resistance of the uncle and the niece is silence. And the resistance of von Ebernach is death, is to submit to death rather than live in a world where Treblinka can exist. How do you even live in the world with that kind of knowledge? He would rather choose death. He would rather not be in the world at all. And he tells them after after saying all this, he says, I bid you good night, farewell. And then again, we see Nicole Stefan's face. It's just feeling the screen. And it's like she's glowing. It's almost like she's made of marble and she's just glowing. And she utters one word very softly, adieu. The uncle hears it and so does von Ebernach. Her one and only word that she ever spoke to him. And he leaves. And she seems dazed by what's happened. She's wearing this shawl that I think is fascinating. It has these two hands reaching out to each other, but never touching. And to me, that felt like the perfect symbol of her and von Ebernach. That it's these two people that maybe in another life could have connected to one another, could have fallen in love before the war. Like maybe they could have been together and had a life or been friends or I don't know, something. But they never will be because of the war, because of the Nazis, because of like all this horror that's been unleashed. These two hands that never touch, even though they reach towards each other. And then at the end, when von Ebernach is about to leave and the uncle appears in the doorway as um, he opens the book, in the book, there's this uh, quote and it says, it is beautiful for a soldier to disobey orders which are criminal. And it's almost like the uncle is, he's trying to encourage von Ebernach to walk away, to disobey orders, to not go along with it. Von Ebernach is not able to do that. He stays in the military, but he gets transferred to the front lines where he's going to die most likely. Plus we know he has a limp, plus he's older. You know, he's closer to 40. So his chances are are pretty high that he will die. That's the last that they ever see of him. And even though he does not disobey orders, I think it's still his own form of resistance, which is to die, which is to not be complicit any longer and to not actively participate in what's happening. And then, of course, it ends with the niece and the uncle sitting at the table, eating their lunch, talking about the cold and the silence. They, they sit in silence by the window and then it ends. And it's like these three people have come into contact with each other and will probably be forever changed by it. Like their life will never really be the same, the uncle and the niece, because of the war and because of von Ebernach, his monologues every night and the relationship that developed between them because it would just be so easy for them to just hate each other. That's not what happens. 
Like, I love the moral complexity of this film, the moral questions that it raises of what happens when you, when people who should hate each other, who should be enemies, have to actually be in contact with each other and talk to each other and see each other as human, even though they don't really talk, but he talks and they have to see him differently. And all their preconceived notions are thrown out. And they have to see him as a person. And then they find themselves moved by him. She's falling in love with him. But at the same time, they want to maintain that silence and that resistance. That's very important to them is to not give in to him. They want to maintain that resistance against against Von Ebernack. But the thing is, is that what what are they trying to resist by the end? Like, what does the silence do by the end? Because they realize he's not one of these people who embraces Nazi ideology. He's not somebody who revels in violence and hatred and inflicting pain. Should they have spoken to him? You know, the uncle seems to regret not speaking more to him. I don't know. These It's like interesting questions where it's like, what more could they have done? Is there anything they could have done? But that resistance is what they had to maintain. It was the principle of it. It was the principle of we, we're not going to allow ourselves to be invaded and dominated. You can come in here and talk and all of that, but we maintain our silence and we have some kind of power and control over the situation when everything has been taken away from us in this war. So it was a form of resistance. And the niece is resisting her own love for him and her own feelings. But she allows herself that one word and she allows herself to stare into his eyes. And you can tell that there was a connection there for sure. And she, throughout the film, has tried to resist falling in love with him and resist her own feelings until the very end when that comes out. I don't know. I just think the film is fascinating in the way that it looks at these different forms of resistance. And I hope that you liked my episode and and what I talked about. This is definitely my favorite Melville film for sure. (laughs) I just love this film and I find that it continues to haunt me and it continues to have so much resonance even now. So I will stop here. Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.